Do you remember uh, growing up when the most difficult decision, the most pressing decision that you had to make was what are you going to do after school? You remember that? It's like, ah, oh, am I going to go ride bikes with my friends? Am I going to play video games with my friends? Or am I going to watch cartoons with my friends? You remember? You remember that? Like that was the most pressing decision that you had to make, and it was difficult. I've noticed as we get older, though, the questions that we have to wrestle with get a little bit more complicated. Have you noticed that? Like after high school, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to go into the trades? Am I going to go to college? And maybe an even more important question is, how am I going to pay for college? Right? Like, how am I going to do that? After you get done with college, the question is, like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I know what my degree is, but do I really want to give 40 to 50 years of my life pursuing this? Like, that's a big, a big deal, right? Would you agree? Like, that's not a small decision that you're making. And then maybe equal to that is, like, who am I going to do life with? Like, that, that's a big decision. And all of these decisions have consequences and blessings attached to them based on the decisions that you make. Like, it would really stink to make a career decision that you hate. Wouldn't it? Like, 40 years of this. Uh. <laughs> or you marry the wrong person. You're like, 40 years of this. Uh. <laughs> that, that would be awful. Right? And if you need help, let me know. We do counseling. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, these are big decisions that have, like, lasting, you know, implications. Today, what we are talking about is probably the greatest decision that every single person has to make. Not everyone makes the decision about who to marry. Some people, they never get married, and that's fine. But this is a decision that every single person who's ever lived has to wrestle with. And the consequences of this decision, I didn't start my timer. There we go. Let's start over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so this decision has not only implications for today, but for eternity. And so the question, the decision that we have to wrestle with, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is. So we're in this series called Unveiling Jesus because we're wanting you to see from the scriptures who the Bible says Jesus is because we all have an idea of who we think he is, right? Last week we, we opened with the Talladega, you know, prayer that Ricky Bobby prays to the eight-pound baby Jesus because he likes the eight-pound baby Jesus, right? So we all have this idea of who Jesus is, and a lot of times it fits who we want him to be, Right? Like, we want this loving and caring and kind Jesus. But we've looked at the first week that Jesus actually is judge. And that might not be the type of Jesus that we want in our life because Jesus has the right and the authority to say, this is right and this is wrong. And if that conflicts with your belief of right and wrong, what do you do with that Jesus? Do you go back to the baby Jesus? Or do you say, this is the Jesus that I have to wrestle with? And then last week, we talked about Jesus is greater. He's greater than our emotions, our feelings. He's greater than our traditions. He's greater than our politics. Like, he's greater than. And if he's greater than, then what do we do with when we put things above him? Like, this is things that we have to wrestle with. So Jesus has been walking with his disciples for three years. So he's been born. You know, did the baptism thing in the wilderness. And the last three, three years of his life, he has been 
walking and teaching, interacting with them, interacting with the communities, and like fighting with the religious people, the religious leaders of that day. So we're in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is only weeks away from dying. And so we're just weeks away from Easter, and that's when we'll wrap up this unveiling and talking about, about Jesus on, on Easter. But for three years, Jesus has been talking about who he is and doing miracles, uh, healing people, water into wine, walking on water, uh, people who have died, he's raised. I mean, he's done all these things, and yet people still have a question of who he is. So in chapter 16 and verse 1, we won't read it, but you have two religious entities, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Think of them as the religious Republicans and the religious Democrats. <laughs> they don't like each other just like the Democrats and the Republicans don't like each other, right? So these are the religious ruling class of Israel that have different theologies and different beliefs uh, from each other. And so they don't like each other, but yet the Bible says they come together to try to trap and trick Jesus. That's their one common thing they have in common is they both hate Jesus. Why? Because he's helped people? Because he's fed people? Because he's healed people? Like, what has he done that would make you so mad that you want to get rid of him? Well, what he's done is he doesn't match their identity of who God is supposed to be. And if you think about it, I was thinking through this myself. It's like, when I question not if Jesus is God, because I know that he is. I mean, I've come to that belief. But I do question his goodness sometimes. And I question his goodness when bad things happen. When I see tragedies, and I'm like, well, couldn't he have stopped that? Like, if I was God, like, you should never say that. But if I were God, I would not allow that to happen. So we start questioning his ability to do good or stop evil. Did he know what was going to happen? And so because of the circumstances in our life, we begin questioning the character and the nature of God because our circumstances have changed. And this is what the disciples are wrestling with. This is what the religious people are wrestling with. And this is what we wrestle with. I think many of us, including myself, we want a God who's a genie. Rub the lamp, which means I went to church today. Give me what I, give me what I want. Rub the lamp. I've given it church today. Give me two things I want, right? Like we treat him as if he's a genie. That's, that's the Jesus we want. We want the genie Jesus. Put that on a t-shirt, right? I want the genie Jesus. Gives me what I want. But is that really who Jesus is? So if Jesus, who he is, is important, then we have to wrestle with that. So Jesus is like, okay, if this is probably the most important question that we're going to wrestle with, let me just throw it out there and let me ask my disciples what people think about who I am. So in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, he says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, the 12 guys that he's pulled together, he says, what do people say, the son of man, who is he? So he's like taking a poll. Like he's been traveling and he wants to know what they think. Now, I want to stop here because I want to show a map. This is where Jesus is. So Jesus, there we have it. Thank you. So this is where Jesus has been doing ministry for the last three and a half years. Now, I, it looks like a big area, but it's probably, it's probably like the size of Boston. It's not, very, it's not very big, actually. 
And so we've talked about the Decapolis. That's where Jesus healed uh, the demon-possessed, the two guys that were demon-possessed. They were naked running around in the tombs. Remember, he closed them, puts them in their right mind. That's, that's where that happened. And then you have Samaria where that's where he met the woman at the well. So he's been around all this, this area healing people, teaching people. And now he's just north of the little lake up there. That's the Lake of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee. It looks like a, a pond. <laughs> but he's just north of that uh, in, 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 in Caesarea Philippi. And a lot of times I just overlook and skim through things in the Bible. And one of them is like names I can't pronounce. Do you do that? You're like reading through and going, uh, I'll just call him Jim. I mean, I can't pronounce that. Other things I, I skip through are like genealogies. Like it's just a long list of people that I don't know. And what are the significance of that? I mean, I'm glad they're in the Bible. But what does that mean to me? The other thing that I skip over a lot of times is when we read, like he's in Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so what? I'll share the significance of that in, in just a minute. But this was a place that was known for idolatry and and idol worship. So Jesus intentionally goes there and intentionally is asking this question. Who do you think people think I am? And so they give an answer in verse 14. Well, they said, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think that you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah. And some people think you're just one of those other, other prophets. Now that's a weird answer to a person who's been traveling for three and a half years, healing people, feeding people, walking on water, and doing things that only God can do. Right? Like, you think, you think I'm a, a dead prophet that's come back to life, like reincarnation? That's who you think, that's who the people think that I am? And I think, I think we're like, well, yeah, they just got it wrong. Well, you know, I mean, it's been 2,000 years. And in 2,000 years, people still have strong opinions about who Jesus is. Um, Gandhi. Gandhi said this about God. He said he's a, or, or Jesus. He was a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became a ransom for the world. It was a perfect act. Gandhi gives a pretty good description of who Jesus claimed to be. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. And he made this statement one time, I would become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. And it's like, I got to, why did he say that? Like, why would Gandhi say that he would become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians? So I did some research, and there was an interview that he did with a pastor, and the pastor asked him, why would you make that statement? And this was his response. I'm cool with Jesus. That's a paraphrase, right? I'm cool with Jesus, and I'm intrigued by the Gospels. So I went to a Christian church. And when I walked in, they told me to leave. Because, two reasons. One, he wasn't at a certain level of class. He wasn't of a high class. And two, his skin color. And because of that, he walked away, cool with Jesus, cool with the gospel, just I don't want to be anything like the people who claim to be a follower of Jesus. Can I pause for a moment, give you a pastoral? May we never be like that. May we never 
exclude people because they don't look like us or think like us. Let me encourage you, before you leave every service, find somebody that you don't know, you're not familiar with, and introduce yourself. I don't want us to be a church that doesn't feel welcome to people who've never been here. Okay, pastor moment over. Okay? So Gandhi's like, I would have become a Christian, but Christians are pretty bad people. Napoleon, the little short guy, he said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and other people in the world, there is no possible comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, and even myself have founded uh, empires, but we founded them on force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love, and there are, this hour, millions of people who would die for him. Pretty incredible declaration of who Jesus is. President Gorbachev said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Now, I don't know that we would say that in our culture. This is how we would say that. Jesus was a good dude. He was a good guy. Like he fed people. Like he healed people. Like, and it's good for people to have hope in something. And that's what he's giving people. That's what we would say. We would just say he was a good teacher. He was a good man. But what that misses and what Gorbachev missed was that he's God. He wasn't just a good man. So I love what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil himself. But he would not be a good person. I read a sermon one time. The title of it was Lunatic, Liar, or Lord, which is Jesus. He's a lunatic if he thinks he's God, but he's not. He's a liar if he thinks he's God and he knows he's not, but he tells everybody that he is. Or he actually is Lord and he is God. And again, that's the question that we all have to wrestle with. Who is he? So you can't take a poll of people to find out who you think Jesus is. So Jesus sees that. And so that's his introduction. So he says, well, you know what? Let me ask my disciples who have followed me what they think. So verse 15. So he turns to question. He says, okay, but what do you say about me? Who do you think I am? And, of course, Peter, which, you know, if you've read the stories of Peter, you know you're like, what's coming out of his mouth next? Like, what is he going to say? Because he's the spokesperson, or he thinks he's the spokesperson. And I would say like 90% of the time, he's just like putting his foot in his mouth rather than speaking truth. But actually, he gets it right. Verse 16. So Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Other translations say the Christ. It's just the title for Messiah. The son of the living God. (laughs) Wow, Peter, you finally got one right. That's awesome. Like, you are the chosen one. You are the person that was prophesied in the old Hebrew scriptures from the very, very, very first book in Genesis. Like you are the son of God. You are God in the flesh. You are Emmanuel. You are the good shepherd. You are the light of the world. You are the bread of life. You are the way, the truth, the life. You, that, this is who you are. 
And Jesus' response to him in the next verse is, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because uh, my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from humans. So he says that Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the one who's come to rescue all mankind. And he, Jesus says two things. One, you are blessed because you know this. Because not everyone does. Some people think I'm a dead prophet or my cousin John the Baptist. Like the fact that you know who I am, you are blessed. If you know that Jesus is God and you've received him, you are blessed. You are blessed to know that. But that wasn't revealed to you because you went to a good church service or you saw a miracle in your own life. He says human, humanity, miracles, they don't point that Jesus is God. Now, they point to that there's something special about him. Like creation. Creation reveals that there is a God. But it doesn't give us enough revelation to say that Jesus is that God and that what he did for us on our behalf is what saves us. But it gives us an idea that we're not here by ourselves, right? So he's saying that these miracles weren't enough. John actually, I'm sorry, uh, Paul actually says in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, that faith is a gift that God gives to us. The fact that you believe this, uh, Peter, is a gift that God gave to you. You didn't get it from somewhere else. It also goes on in that chapter to say that those who present the gospel, it says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. So I want us to make shirts that says, God thinks I have beautiful feet. He's probably the only person that looks at my feet and says they're beautiful, right? But he's saying, you have beautiful feet. So the signs aren't enough. God has to reveal it. But I want to make it clear. We are still all responsible for what we believe about Jesus. It still lands on your lap of what you believe about Jesus. Jesus does not have grandchildren. Meaning, you can't, you're not all set because your parents believe or your grandparents believe. You have to answer that question. And if you come to the same conclusion that Peter comes to, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, then God says there are three truths that will transform your life. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. The first truth is this. You become part of what Jesus is building. When you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that came to pay for your sins, he, he, he involves you in what he's doing. Look at verse number 18. Now I say, you are Peter, which means rock. So wait a minute, he just, he went from being Simon to now Peter. Jesus just changed his name. He can do that, he's God, right? He says, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the power of hell will not conquer it. So Jesus changed Peter's name, and he changes it to, or Simon, to Peter, which means little rock. He, the Greek word is petros, which means little stone. So he says, you're a little stone. And on this rock, uses a different Greek word, and there's significance by that. He says petra, which means a large rock. So he, he's not saying I'm building my church on a little pebble. I'm building it on this big rock. Well, what's the big rock that he's building it on? What Peter just revealed about what God told him, that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, you might have grown up in a tradition that believes that the church was founded on Peter. He was the first pope, and the, the church, he's the foundation. I don't think Peter believed that. In a, in a letter he writes to a church, in his, his first letter, 1 uh, Peter chapter 2, he says this, you are becoming 
Uh, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. So he's saying that, that Jesus is the cornerstone. He was rejected by people, but was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones. You guys are the, the Petros. You guys are also little stones that he's using to build his temple. And what's more, you're holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you're offering, you are offering spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scripture says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, a cho chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him, who's the him, Jesus, will never be disgraced. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2 says, together we are his house, building on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, and are the, cor the cornerstone, again, who's the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, even the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles are being made part of what God is doing through his spirit. Paul said again in 1 Corinthians that no one can lay a foundation than the foundation that was laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation of the church is not the pastor. It's Jesus Christ. That's why on the door it doesn't say ministry of Ken Knott. This is his church. The Bible says that he's the head of the church and that we are the body parts. So I am the pastor of this church. I am the shepherd of this church. I am the chief servant of this church. But this is not my church. This is God's church. He's the one that's building it. But he says that we get to be a part of that. Notice he says, I will build my church. This is his. He's the one that's building it. So what he's building is not a building. Like, so if you walked in today for the first time, you're like, this doesn't look like a New England church. No, it doesn't. It's sort of like a warehouse. Most of uh, Grace churches are in warehouses because it's not about the building. It's about the people. This is the first time in Scripture in the New Testament where the word church is actually used. And it's not referring to a building. It's referring to a gathering because the word, the Greek word that he uses is ekklesia, which means a gathering of people. So what God is building is not a building or a denomination. He is building up people that are on mission, his mission. So the church is not built on Peter. As a matter of fact, in the very same chapter, in verse 23, Jesus is going to look at Peter and go, get behind me, you're Satan. The church is not built on Satan. In Galatians, Paul will confront Peter because of something that he's doing that's not biblical. It's not helpful. Like Peter is not the foundation. Jesus is, and he invites us to be a part of what he's building. Here's the second truth, that hell cannot stop the church. And the second part of, of verse 18 says, and all the power of hell will not conquer it. So I mentioned that he's in Caesarea, and he mentions this for a purpose. And again, you just skip over it if you don't do a little bit of research to find out what's in Caesarea. In Caesarea, King Herod has established himself in that region. And so he has erected uh, monuments and signs and, and temples for false worship. And one of them, I'll have you throw up the slide, is this temple, is this place where they would worship a, 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 an idol, called Pan, P-A-N, which was an, a false god that was half goat 
and half man. And so in this, in this cave, that's what it, so this was called, just so you know, this was called the gates of hell. Okay, show, show the next slide. What they would do is they would lay their children on that rock right there, and they would offer their children as a sacrifice to the false god Pan. And the reason they called it the gates of hell, because Josephus, who was not a Christian, he was a Jewish historian at Jesus' time, they said that they tried to find, this is a spring there, they tried to find the bottom of the spring, and they could not find the bottom of the spring. So they believed that it was the gateway to the abyss, to hell. So Jesus, I want you to, you got you to get this, Jesus is standing in front of the gates of hell, and he's saying, what I'm establishing, this will not prevail. It takes on a whole new context when you read and understand. Like, Jesus, this is not baby, baby Jesus, this is not cute Jesus. This is Jesus standing in the front lines saying, I am kicking demons' butts and taking names. This is the Jesus that, that's standing here in front of the gates of hell saying that what I'm establishing this will not happen. It will not overthrow it. The church, the Bible, has been under attack and has been tried to be wiped out ever since the conception of it. And yet we're still here today. And we still have the Bible in many different translations. It will not be thwarted. And so Jesus said, the next slide shows what it would look like in Jesus' day. So it wasn't this just a huge cave. Those were actually like really nice temples that people would go to offer their kids. And Jesus says, the gates will not, this will not affect my church. Here's the third truth, that the church has the keys of the gospel. Look at verse number 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and what you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and what you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. What are these keys? Many of you have keys. Keys help you get into your house, into your car, into work, right? Keys are the thing that open the door into something. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving the church the keys to the gospel. This is what he told the religious leaders of his day in Luke chapter 11. What sorrow awaits you experts in religion of the law? For you remove the key of knowledge from people. You don't enter, and you prevent others from entering. This is the Gandhi story. That church did not allow him to enter into a relationship. And I believe there are churches that have lost their keys because they are no longer outwardly focused. Call them a social club. Call them a committee. Call, call them whatever you want. But when they don't care about what the people who are disconnected from God, you can't call them a church. These religious leaders, God says, you know what? I'm taking the keys away from you, and I'm giving them to my church. So we, as the church, we have the keys to the gospel, the good news. And he's commissioned us to go out and share the good news with others. The last couple conversations that Jesus has with his disciples, Matthew chapter 28. 
Jesus called them together, his disciples, and says, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go make disciples. What is the disciple? Someone who has turned from their personal sin and called on God to forgive them. Go to all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey the commands that I've given to you. And be sure of this. I will be with you into the end of the age. Until I come back, you can count on me being with you, building my kingdom, strengthening the church, attacking the gates of hell. He says this in Acts chapter 1. So this is after he's died on the cross, has risen, and now he's meeting with his disciples. He says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, has the time come for for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? I was reading it this week, and it just hit me. He's like, they still don't get it. They still think that he's establishing his kingdom. And Jesus is like, guys, I've told you, this is not, I'm establishing the church. I'm not establishing my kingdom. This is a movement of people. It's not a kingdom. This is what you should know. So he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set the, t- the, days and the dates and the times. And they are not for us to know. But you, this is what I want you to know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. That's what I want you to be. Take the keys that opens the kingdom of God, reveals who Jesus is, because that's what the gospel does, and I want you to go into all the world. And in their world, that was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That is the truth once you recognize who Jesus is, that we are part of what he's doing, that nothing can stop it, and that we get to introduce people to the love of Jesus. Um, So he's unpacking that. So the question that you have to wrestle with is, who is Jesus? Only you can answer that. And I hope that you would search Scripture, maybe talk to somebody that does have a personal relationship with Jesus so that you can understand who he is. But the second question is just as important. I'm going to encourage you to read the rest of chapter 16 because the rest of chapter 16 is, will you follow Jesus? Do you believe he's the Son of God? And if you do, will you follow him? Will you count the cost? Dr. Adrian Rogers is a pastor that I, I respect. He's, he's since passed. But he made this statement. It's free to receive salvation, but it is costly to follow Jesus. It will cost you to follow Jesus. And it might be that you have to give up your, your, what you believe about Jesus to really accept who Jesus is. There might be things that you want to practice, do, be a part of, and God says, I, that's not what I want for my children. I, I, I want you to be different. You're a called-out assembly. So in way of application, I think you need to ask yourself these questions. And this is personal. This is, how, this is something you have to wrestle with. And the first question is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe he is? Your answer to that could change the trajectory of your life. If you think he's just a good man, then why would you just follow a good man? There are a lot of good men and women. But if he is the son of God, that changes everything. And I guess the second question is, if you do believe he is the son of God, does your life match what you believe about Jesus? See, I don't struggle with who Jesus is. I've settled that. I believe he's the son of God. 
If you're struggling with that, uh, we do have a class called Alpha that's going to be begin meeting here in March for people who don't really understand who Jesus is and they want to know more about it. It's not for the person who's already come to faith in Jesus. It's for the person who says, I'm not sure I know who this guy is. That would be something for you. If you want more information, let me know. It is time to wake up. (laughs) Service is almost over. Time to wake up. But if you have come to that place where you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then the question is, does my life match the Jesus of the Bible? Now that's what I wrestle with. Because Jesus is love. And do I love everyone the way that Jesus loves them? That's tough. Jesus is judge. He says that this is wrong. doesn't matter if I like it or not. It's got to be wrong. And I've got to adjust my life. Have you obeyed the gospel? Repented of your personal sin and disobedience and asked Jesus to forgive you? That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is the Son of God that died on the cross to pay for your sin so that you could be set free from your sin. The only thing is you have to ask. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you are blessed because God has revealed that to you because not everyone believes Jesus is the Son of God. But you still have to receive that. And you receive it by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to save you. And I guess the last question I'd ask you to consider is this. If your life was the evidence that Jesus changes lives, what would the people around you think about Jesus? Like, you're the example of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. What would people think about your Jesus by watching your life? That's a very difficult question that we have to wrestle with. But it's one that I think we should wrestle with because of all that God's done for us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. My hope and prayer every single week is that you would have an encounter with the Jesus that transforms. The Jesus that does love you unconditionally. Like he's not saying you've got to clean up your act before you can have a relationship with him. He says, I love you the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. So once you've come to the realization that he is the son of God and you've asked him yourself for forgiveness of your sin, his spirit transforms your life and works in, it works in your life to conform you to be more like Jesus. And that's a process. That's a lifelong process. So that's why we don't judge people here because we're just all in process. Some have been in process a lot longer than others, and that's great. But who is Jesus? Is how you live your life, does it match what you believe about Jesus? And if not, what will you do about it? Jesus, thank you, first of all, for for coming. Putting flesh on and being that perfect sacrifice. Because we could not, we could not 
be good enough to earn forgiveness of sins. We can't. So it is a free gift that you give to us. And so God, I'm praying today if there's someone here who's never asked for forgiveness, they've never asked for you to save them, that they would simply say that. You don't make it complicated. <laughs> you want a personal relationship with every single person. So you don't make it hard. You make it very simple. You reveal who you are. The Father opens our eyes to that. But we simply have to make a choice. That's a decision we have to make. I will accept it or I will reject it. Jesus, for those that have accepted you, I pray that you would show us the areas of our life that don't match the beliefs that we have about you. God, that we would see that you've entrusted to us keys to the kingdom. God, you know I don't give my house key to just anybody. I've got to know them and trust them. And so it is a privilege to be able to have my house key. How much more is it a privilege to have the house key to the kingdom of God, to heaven, that we get to share with others? So God, I pray that as the church, as a called out assembly of people, that we would always be looking to be a blessing to the people in our community and that we would never be comfortable with the size of our congregation or only accepting and loving to the people who look, look like us or believe like us. God, I believe that when we become that type of church, that we no longer exist as a church on mission. We exist for our own comfort and our own pleasure, and that's not church. God, I pray that if that's our individual heart, that, you would that we would be convicted of that and that we could confess that. God, help us always to be outwardly focused and personally involved in the mission of Jesus. This is my prayer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.